Okay, let's uh, go to God in prayer before we, um, we look at His Word. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come today before You, we truly want to ask for Your help to understand Your Word, which speaks so powerfully about Jesus and how it relates to Melchizedek. And we pray that even today as we live in Singapore, that uh, the message and the power of what is spoken will really touch our hearts and lead us to assurance and confidence in Jesus. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, many years ago, uh, I knew of a man who was a deacon in uh, his church. And uh, he was a leader in a church and he knew the Bible well. He's a Bible study leader and he was, uh, he was married. He was a good father, a good husband. And he was a very successful businessman. And all in all, he was a picture of a really grounded Christian man. But suddenly, uh, over a short span of time, he'd become very successful. His business uh, got publicly listed and he was featured in a newspaper as an entrepreneur. He became very rich. And I'm not sure whether it was linked to that, but uh, somehow his understanding of the Christian faith, his convictions started to change. And what happened was, he uh, started exploring other religions and he left the church. And today, from what I understand, he doesn't go to church anymore and he doesn't see himself as a Christian. And fundamentally what had happened was he decided there was time to move on to something else apart from being a Christian. He decided that there was time to move on to something else. And I think that that is a temptation that we all may face one time in our life, or maybe more than one time of our life, to move on to something else apart from Jesus, or to move back to something else apart from Jesus. And that's why it's so important for us to understand and look at today's passage. Now, the very first book of the Bible... In the book of Genesis, there's this really strange account of this guy called Melchizedek. And to show you how strange it is, uh, I'll put up here on this slide. This is Genesis chapter 17. It speaks of this strange man called Melchizedek. Now what had happened was, Abram, uh, who was the patriarch and the father of Israel, had won this great battle against these four kings. And as he's coming back from the battle he comes across this guy called Melchizedek. Uh, As far as we know, he's never met him before. Uh, Melchizedek just comes out of the blue. And this Melchizedek is a king and a priest, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he has. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a really strange story, and it's even stranger why it's in the Bible. Uh, I know that uh, my dad likes to watch many, many movies, and the interesting thing is, when you watch a movie with my dad, he's, because he's watched so many movies, I think every night he must watch one movie, right? He's watched so many movies that every movie he watches, by about the first half an hour, he can sort of tell you the ending, right? <laughs> now, one of the problems is that, it's just that because every scene, he says, has a significance, right? So if you pay attention to every character, right, and every scene, it, it leads to the end. But the problem is that when you come to the Bible, when you come to Genesis chapter 17, and you come to the person of Melchizedek, it breaks that rule, isn't it? Because really, in the whole history of God's people from Genesis all the way to Jesus, this person, Melchizedek, doesn't appear again. Uh, In the whole of the Old Testament, he appears only one more time in the book of Psalms. So for the Jews, the Jewish people, they were always scratching their head and asking themselves, why is Melchizedek there? What is the point of Melchizedek? Why, is, why did God and the writer of Genesis bother to record this person Melchizedek in two verses when really, if we took up Melchizedek, 
it wouldn't affect the historical story at all. So imagine here, next slide, we took out the whole story of Melchizedek. You can see that there is no break to the flow of Genesis, right? It just, the story keeps going on. It says that uh, Abraham came back from, the, uh, from the winning the battle of the four kings and then who does he meet? The king of Sodom. You never know that Melchizedek was missing because he's really not part of the story at all. And that's why Hebrews chapter 8, sorry, 7 is so important for us because Hebrews chapter 7 actually makes sense of why in the very first book of the Bible, God records for us this incident with Melchizedek. So look with me in verse 1 to 3 of chapter 7 and we'll see how it is that Melchizedek actually makes sense in the Bible. In verse 1 it says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days and end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now verse 1 just basically uh, gives you the basic facts. Nothing but facts, right? About what we already know from Genesis, in, the, in Genesis which records uh, the story of Melchizedek. He was king of Salem, priest of God Most High. He met Abraham after defeating the four kings. He blessed him and received his 10%. But verse 2 draws for us the meaning of what was so important that Melchizedek was recorded for us in the Bible. And there are four things, really, which are recorded for us. The first thing is, okay, you need to see on the slide, Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek literally means son, or sorry, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek literally means in Hebrew, the king of righteousness. But that's not all. He was a place, king of a place. And that place was Salem, which later on would be probably Jerusalem. Now, Salem is actually comes, comes from the root word in Hebrew called Shalom. And you know what Shalom means, right? Shalom literally means peace. So this word Salem, which comes from Shalom, literally means peace. So, Melchizedek is the, the king of peace. He's the king of peace because that's what Salem means. He's the king of righteousness and he's also the king of peace. But he's not just a king. As we learn in verse 1, he's also a priest. Okay, he's also a priest, which should be up here, right? Now for the Jews, this would be very, very uh, strange, very, very peculiar. Because in the whole history of the Jewish nation, the king is always the king and the priest is always the priest. And the two shall never become one. So we just finished studying 1 Samuel last year. And you remember 1 Samuel, King Saul uh, decided to play priest for one day, remember? And when he decided to play priest for one day, he was fired from his job as being a king. Remember? So the king is never supposed to play the role of a priest. And the priest never plays the role of a king. But Melchizedek was both king and a priest. How unusual is that? The fourth thing is, he says in verse 3, he was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days and end of life. 
Now, he's not literally saying that um, Melchizedek was like an angel or some sort of supernatural being with no father, no mother, no beginning and end. But he, what he's saying is, as we read of him in the book of Genesis, in a literary sense, a writing sense, Melchizedek just comes onto the scene and then he disappears from the scene. We don't know who his father is, we don't know who his mother is, we don't know where he came from, we don't know, know where he goes to. Right? He just comes, blesses Abraham, and then he goes away. Now, what is the whole point of Melchizedek then? Well, the key is in verse 3, isn't it? He resembles the Son of God, who is priest forever. You see, Melchizedek is, in a very real way, someone who symbolically, in a, in, a, in, a, in a model or resembling way, looks forward to Jesus Christ. See, in everything that we learn about Melchizedek, we learn in a symbolic way. His name is the King of Righteousness. But is he the King of Righteousness? No. He's the King of Salem, the King of Peace. But does that mean that he's literally the King of Peace? Does he bring peace? No. Is he a priest forever? Because we don't know who his father or mother is and we don't know where he went? No. But Jesus is all of those things in a real, real, true way. So if you look up here on the slide, next slide, Jesus literally is the king of righteousness. Right? Already in Hebrews chapter 1, God had said to him about the Son, your throne will last forever and ever and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. He is not just symbolically the king of righteousness, he is truly the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. In Acts chapter 10, it says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. He is truly the King of Peace. And He is the priest forever. Like in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we read that He is a high priest who has gone through the heavens. He is the Son of God. So because He is the Son of God, He is the priest who has gone to heaven, He lives forever. Now this is so significant because... After all these years, we finally have the answer of why we have Melchizedek. Because he's looking forward to this person called Jesus. Now, I remember when I went to university, I wasn't a Christian. Many people tried to uh, reach out to me, read the Bible with me. Uh, I think I must have disappointed scores of Christians in, um, in uh, their lifetime. I've been to church, I've come out for altar call, all sorts of things, right? but I never remained a Christian. But the only time it really stuck and I really solidly, I think in my own mind, became a Christian was when someone came up to me and started reading the Bible with me systematically. And I realized that actually God's, the Bible, was actually historical and reliable. I could trust it. It was actually historical. But more than that, I realized that the Bible was actually God's Word. And why I realized it was God's Word was because God must have truly been speaking because the prophecies of the past were fulfilled in the future. And only God can do that. Only God can see the future. Only God is sovereign enough to know and plan for these things. And that's exactly what's happened, isn't it? Next slide. Because this Melchizedek was all along looking forward to Jesus and helping and prepare for ourselves to look forward to this a new priest who lives forever, and this king in the person of Jesus. 
Now in verse 4 to 10, uh, we have to read it through Jewish eyes, right? Because in verse 4 to 10, the Jew will be saying, yes, okay, there's this line of priests in the line of Melchizedek, but what about the line of Levi that we've had for hundreds and hundreds of years? Surely, that is more special and that is more significant than this line of Melchizedek. But look at what it says in verse 4. Just think of how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites. Even though they also are descended from Abraham, this man, however, does not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Okay, so for the Jewish person, they've got a dilemma, a problem, right? They have the, the line of priests from Levi, they have the line of priests now from Melchizedek. And all along, these Jewish Christians, ever since they've grown up as children, they've gone to the synagogue, they've gone to the temple, they've always followed the line of the priest of Levi. But after they became a Christian, they followed Jesus Christ. But the temptation was, the great pool of their tradition, the great pool of their history was taking them back to the temple and to the Levitical priests. But look at what the writer of Hebrews says. Just think of how great Melchizedek was. And how great was he? He was so great that Abraham, the patriarch of the, of the Israel nation, gave him 10%. Now, if you look up here on this slide, I, I put a lot of slides today because I think visually it's important to sort of capture the whole idea of what is being said here. And I think visually it's easier to understand it, right? So Abraham was very great already. Uh, in the mind of a Jewish person, Abraham was like greater than Lee Kuan Yew, right? Because not only was he the, the, the father of the nation, but he was like basically, literally their father because genetically they were all linked back to him, right? So it's almost as if we're all related Back to Lee Kuan Yew, like we're all Lee's if you want to think of it that way, sort of thing. So you get my picture, right? So Abraham was so great, he was the patriarch or the father of the nation. But not only that, in verse 6, he received the promises from God. So he was a really mighty man, Abraham. But Abraham, next slide, paid Melchizedek 10%. He gave him his tithe. And the principle is very clear in verse Seven, isn't it? Without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So after Abraham paid Melchizedek the ten percent, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So who is greater, the one who receives the blessing, or the one who gives the blessing? Well, verse seven says the one who gives the blessing is the greater one, right? So Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham. And not only is he greater than Abraham, he's greater than the priestly line of Levi. Because the passage says that Levi was still in the body of Abraham when Abraham paid and was blessed by Melchizedek. 
Can you show the next slide? Okay, so the Levitical priest through Abraham paid the 10% to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed not just Abraham but the Levitical priest. So if you think of it this way, he's saying, surely the, 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 the line of Melchizedek is superior to the line of Levi. But the writer of Hebrews goes on, isn't it? And he goes on to say that it's not just because Jesus belongs to the line of Melchizedek that makes him greater, but Jesus in himself, in his essence, in his whole being, is greater than any Levitical priest. So in verse 11, he goes on to say, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now Jesus is not just better than a Levitical priest because he belongs to the line of Melchizedek, or he's been prophesied by uh, Melchizedek's model. But Jesus in himself is better. Why? Well, right from the very first section, right, verse 11, because he brings perfection. Perfection. Now, this is a major theme in the book of Hebrews, this idea of being a per- perfect, right, perfection. In the past, if you look up here on the slide, Jesus was said to be perfect. Okay? Jesus was said to be perfect, a perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice, perfect, perfected in everything to be able to serve his people. So in verse 2, it says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, through whom, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. In Hebrews chapter 5, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what was su- he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. See, so, as we've been looking through, Jesus is perfect. He's been perfected. But because Jesus is perfect, he brings perfection to his people. So that's what the new idea is in verse 11, isn't it? We can have the perfection that Jesus had. The old Levitical priesthood, that couldn't bring perfection, that couldn't make people perfect because the priests themselves were weak and sinful. But Jesus who is perfect is able to make us perfect. And he says, the whole argument, that because Jesus comes not from his ancestry as a Levi or as a, in his, uh, some sort of lineage, but he comes on the po- basis of the power of an indestructible life. That's what it says there in verse 16, right? He comes as a power of indestructible life. He is able to be a priest forever for us. 
Now again, as we look at this passage, it brings up in verse 17 uh, another quote, the only other quote in the whole of the Old Testament about Melchizedek. So there was Genesis chapter 14, and now there's Psalm 110. Okay, it talks about the, the, the priest forever. Now if you look up here on this slide, okay, you'll see, oh, you see that uh, Genesis chapter 14 was written around 2200 BC. Okay, or that's when um, uh, Melchizedek would have been around. And then Psalm 110 was written about 100, well, sorry, 1000 BC. So it's about how many 1200 years, right? And the Levitical priest would have been serving for about more than 500 years. But yet, yet, the writer of Psalms, which is David, wrote about Melchizedek being a priest forever rather than the Levitical priesthood. And again, this shows the sovereignty of God and the foreknowledge of God. Because he would actually cause David to write about a Melchizedek priesthood rather than a Levitical priesthood which had been in existence for 500 years. And he would refer to this Melchizedek as priest forever. Now, Psalm 110 is, uh, was really confusing to the Jews. Uh, again, just as Genesis chapter 14 would have been. If you look up here on this slide, this is a quote from it. The problem with uh, Psalm 110 is the same problem that we find in Genesis chapter 14, especially for the Jew. It predicts in the future that David, right? David says in the future, God would say to his Lord that he would sit at God's right hand until all the enemies would be made a footstool. And that God will extend his mighty scepter from Zion, right? And that person would be king in the midst of all his enemies. Now the problem again is, this same person who's going to be a mighty king, a mighty king forever, is also the same person who will be a priest like Melchizedek. So in verse 4, the Lord swears to this same person, he says, I have sworn and will not change my mind. You are a priest forever and you order Melchizedek. So once again, this person in the future, I guess in the future of Psalm, is going to be both king and priest. But that's something that's never happened in the history of Israel. Right? But with the coming of Jesus, this Psalm comes true. This Psalm is fulfilled. Which again shows the foreknowledge and sovereignty of God. Now we know that because Psalm 110, this psalm that we just read, is the most quoted part, or most quoted psalm of the whole Bible. Right? It's the most quoted psalm of the whole of the New Testament. You can look it up in Mark chapter 12, in Acts chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 1, plus numerous other sections, quote Psalm 110. And usually when it quotes Psalm 110, it always speaks about, oh, uh, go back again. Yeah, it always quotes Jesus as King. Now, that's, that's where the context of most of the quotes in the New Testament come from, Psalm 110. Jesus as King, as Messiah. But here, we see in Hebrews chapter 7, that the quote shows that Jesus is not just the King, the mighty King, the, the Messiah and the Christ, but He is priest forever. It picks up on the picture of Melchizedek. Now what a wonderful picture, isn't it? Two verses in Genesis, one verse 
and psalm. But yet they're all looking forward to Jesus as this king who will be priest forever. Now why is it so important that Jesus must be king forever? It's so that we can achieve perfection. Right? So that we can achieve perfection. Because here he becomes priest because of, as you see in verse 16, the power of an indestructible life, isn't it? And in verse 18, it summarizes the whole thing by saying, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we can draw near to God. See, the old system of the Old Testament priests was weak and useless in being able to, to, to allow people to come to draw near to God, to have a relationship with God. But Jesus is priest forever and is able to permanently bring people into a perfect relationship with God. See, like last, uh, about two weeks ago, I, I think many of you have been praying for my grandfather many years ago. My grandfather still lives. He's got a great willpower to live. He's been in the hospital multiple times. He survived lung cancer. Uh, he survived a stroke. Uh, he, he's still living today, right? But anyway, uh, two weeks ago on Tuesday, uh, my, uh, my uncle, who my grandfather lives with, said, oh, call, call us up early on th- Tuesday morning. He said, you have to come now. You know, he's going to die. You have to come. He doesn't have much time to live. So all the relatives all rushed to my grandfather's house. And my, uh, my uncle's family is a Catholic. They're Catholics. So they called the priest and the priest came. And my grandfather was lying in bed. And the priest invited all of us to, to join in the funeral. It's not funeral, sorry, he's not dead yet. So can we follow him? Okay, can I be here? Uh, I think he's giving the last rites. Sorry, not the funeral rites. The last rites. So I, I prayed and we all responded and we were all quite, uh, you know, I, I was very happy with how it began. But at the last part, it, I really struggled with. Because in the last part of this rite, we were meant to ask, okay, um, you know, he, he said, okay, uh, St. Peter, pray for him. And then we were all meant to respond, St. Peter, pray for him, right? Then St. James, pray for him. St. John, St. Paul, St. Andrew, St. Bartholomew, St. Augustine. All, it was like, there was this whole innumerable list of saints who we were calling upon to pray for my grandfather. And just so happened we were studying Hebrews. And I was thinking, all these people, they're dead. Right? I mean, they're dead. So, how can they help my grandfather uh, during this time of need? I mean, when you look at Hebrews, there's only one person you need. And that's Jesus Christ. Because he lives forever, interceding for you in heaven. You don't need to pray to all these people. I mean, Mary, Jesus' mother, is dead too. I mean, so you don't need to pray to all these dead people. You just need to pray to Jesus Christ. And that's what it says here, isn't it? Jesus fulfills what Psalm says, and that he is a priest forever because of the power of his indestructible life. But more than that, Jesus is also sinless. Okay, it says there in verse 26. Such a high priest truly, truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. 
For the law appoints as high priest men and all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. You see that, the theme of perfection again? So what he's saying here is Jesus is not like the other priests. He's not like the other priests, first of all, because he is sinless. He's holy, he's pure. Whereas the other priests, they, they, they are sinful. They have to offer sacrifices of their own. But not only that, Jesus, he says, offers himself once for all, right? And, and the other men, they, they, they offered blood of goats and bulls, but this was ineffective because we had, had to keep going on day after day after day. Whereas Jesus offered himself once for all. Now, once you cure something or once you fix something, you don't need to keep repeating it. So, for myself, ever since I was young, uh, I have uh, this uh, problem with my eye twitching. Okay? Uh, so, ever since I think it was primary school, I have to take a medicine in the morning. And I've taken it like all my life. Uh, and it uh, seems to be working. But the moment I stop it, my eye will start twitching again. Right? Which is a great inconvenience for me. So, I keep taking it. So, this medicine doesn't really cure me. It sort of fixes the symptoms, but it doesn't really cure the, the fundamental root problem, isn't it? It just sort of uh, suppresses and manages the symptoms. And, and that's what the Bible is really saying. The Old Testament Levitical priesthood, they, they used to sacrifice day after day, week after week, year after day, year after year, and the Day of Atonement. But it didn't really fix the problem of sin. But Jesus, by offering himself once for all, solve the problem of sin totally, allows us to draw near to God and make us perfect before Him. Now, when you think of all these things about Jesus, then the question we have to ask ourselves, just as the Jews should have been asking ourselves, would have been, why would you move on from Jesus? Or why would you move back away from Jesus? Because in the whole world, in the whole universe, there is only Jesus who can bring real solution to our problem of sin, of judgment, of eternal death. He's the only one who can bring perfection. So in conclusion, I want you to think for a moment about this uh, issue of power. Okay, to, uh, you bear with me for a while. Okay, you see how it all comes together. Think of power, right? I remember when I was a university student, I had lots and lots of friends, you know, we had lots of friends and doing all sorts of things. And people would help me, these friends would help me with the, my small day-to-day -day problems. You know, sometimes I ask them for their lecture notes, no problem. Ask them to, uh, you know, cover for me if I miss the class or whatever, right? But the problem is, I have all these friends, but they had no power to really help me when I had big problems. Okay, so uh, my car was stolen, I need to make an insurance claim. And I needed to you know I have all this paperwork done. I have lots of friends, but they all don't know, we all don't know what to do, right? They have no power to really help. I had some problem with my electrical wiring <coughs> in my flat. So we're all like, yeah, 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 this is a big problem. But how do we fix it? They can't really help, right? They're all very well-meaning. They're all very helpful. But they can't really help. And that's the thing, you see. The thing is, when we come to the big problem, the biggest problem of all, our relationship with God, sin, the need for forgiveness, we have lots of well-meaning people who want to help. They want to help us, they give us advice. Uh, we have a lot of well-meaning religions. 
We have well-meaning religious friends who want to help. They try their best, but ultimately they have no power to help. See, because they might want to help us, but they have no power. They can't help us. The only person who can help us is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is perfect, who brings perfection, who helps us with once and for all sacrifice. So I remember uh, last week, uh, was not a good week for me in the sense that I, I, I felt stumbled, I sinned, right? I saw something unhelpful on the internet, and I was sad and despairing, right? And I was thinking to myself, who can help me in my time of need? Who can help me in my time of need? Who can help me with my sin before God? Who can help me with my guilty conscience? Uh, it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. He is the only one, the sinless one, the perfect one, the eternal one, who is forever our high priest who can help us in our time of need. So I hope that as we read this passage, I know that it's complicated and we're like, ah, who cares about all this Levi and Melchizedek? But the point is clear, isn't it? There's only one person who can help us in our sin, in our judgment, in our death, and that's Jesus Christ. So we should never ever think of, even think of moving on from Jesus or moving back to where we came from. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see how in your sovereignty and your plan you caused Melchizedek to come into the path of Abram and how it was recorded in your word and how in the book of Psalm you caused David to record of a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And they were all looking forward to the perfect and eternal high priest Jesus Christ. Help us to see that he and he alone was your plan to save our sins, save us from our sins and to save our souls. Dear Father, we pray that for all of us here today, that we will never be tempted to ever move away or to leave Jesus Christ. That when we are faced with that temptation, when we are faced with those doubts, when we are even inclined in some way to move on from Jesus or to move back from where we came, that you always help us to see that there is no solution. Where else can we go but to Jesus? And we pray that truly you will help that stick in our mind and never, ever fall away from him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.